Welcome to the Portland Countdown, a project of the World Parkinson Coalition, made possible with support from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Each month, Dave and I are taking a look at a specific topic of interest in Parkinson's disease as we count down to the Fourth World Parkinson Congress in Portland, Oregon in September 2016. And Dave, today we're focusing on the role of alpha-synuclein, that sticky protein that clumps up in the brains of people living with Parkinson's. And in order to pursue this topic, we're talking with two people today, Patrick Brunden at the Van Andel Research Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Kimberly Gannon, whose biotech neurophage is trying to come up with an agent that could not only attack alpha-synuclein, but might also get rid of those sticky proteins that are behind other neurological conditions like Alzheimer's. But in some ways, John, this story really has its beginnings with some surprising genetic findings tied to Parkinson's disease, findings that kind of turned the research world upside down in the late 1980s. Yes, Dave, it's a fascinating story. It began when a neuroscientist in New Jersey stumbled on two patients with Parkinson's disease. They didn't know each other, but it turned out they were descended from a large family in southern Italy, from a a village called Contorsi. And members of this family one in two children developed Parkinson's disease. And this was a fascinating finding, so that even though Parkinson's isn't normally thought of as genetic, the scientists gathered blood samples and wondered whether they were going to find any clues. And indeed, those clues turned out to be something that would pave the way to our understanding, this deeper understanding of the role of alpha-synuclein. But lest we get ahead of ourselves, uh, let's begin our conversation with Patrick Brunden at the Van Andel Research Institute. And our conversation with him, which began by asking what his reaction was when those first surprising findings took place. I'd grown up in the 80s when Parkinson's disease was considered to be a non-inherited disorder. And as you probably know, there were many studies performed, for example, in identical twins, where there was no indication that if one twin developed the disease, the other one was more likely to develop the disease. So when the first reports came that Parkinson's could be caused by a genetic mutation, it was kind of a paradigm shift. And uh, I remember that the notion that uh, a mutation in the gene that makes the protein that then was found in Lewy bodies, that whole idea was very, very exciting. And uh, there were several of us who had never thought of working in that area that now wanted to work in this, in this field. I remember in 1999, I started recruiting a postdoc who was specifically going to work on alpha-synuclein. So yes, we were excited. We were a little bit shocked and a little bit uh, uh, puzzled that this had been missed somehow, that there was an inheritance. So just to to clarify, initially all they did was find the gene which affected this very rare family. It was an inherited form of Parkinson's disease. But then they found out that the the same protein was present in Lewy bodies, which which are the pathological hallmarks that all Parkinson patients get, correct? That's correct. So, I mean, those two discoveries together had a tremendous impact. I mean, the, the discovery that there is a mutation that causes a dominantly inherited Parkinson's, that alone, of course, is a big discovery. But when you couple it to the discovery by Maria Grassi-Spilentini and, and her team, that it's that particular protein that's mutant in those very, very rare inherited cases in the controversy kindred, that particular protein is present in virtually every Parkinson patient, even those that don't have inherited disease, it's present in a misfolded, clumped up shape, which is called a Lewy body. 
So at the time, everybody thought this might be a vital clue? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, it's always difficult to predict where research will go, but many people were excited by it. And uh, many people, I think, put a lot of energy into starting to do synuclein-related research. Patrick, let's step back for a moment, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about why proteins matter so much. I don't know as many of us really understand that concept very well, how crucial they really are to how the brain works, to how the body works. So say something, if you would, please, about what proteins actually do and what makes it so uh, crucial when proteins go wrong, when they misfold in this particular way. Yeah, so proteins are absolutely essential for, for life. They are the building blocks of cells that uh, cells have also lipids and other things, but proteins perform what we might consider many or most of cellular functions. And they can only do this if they have the right shape. So their three-dimensional structure has to be exactly correct. And to get a three-dimensional structure, the building blocks of every protein, which is a long chain of different amino acids, those building blocks have to arrange themselves in a specific way. Now, if there's a mutation, even in a single building block, something we would call a point mutation, that can change the properties of the protein dramatically so it doesn't fold in the right way. As a result, the protein can lose its ability to function, and that can cause disease, or it can actually gain a function and somehow become toxic. And in some instances, uh, a mutation, once again, it can just be one of a single, uh, a single building block, one single one of the amino acids can be enough. In some cases, a mutation can cause the protein to misfold and create what we would call insoluble aggregates. So it's basically, I think the best analogy is what happens to the white of an egg when you boil an egg. The white of an egg is soluble when you take the egg out of the fridge, when you take the egg out of, of the pan on the stove and it's boiled, it's insoluble and has precipitated into this white mass. And that is, uh, for, for some cases, some diseases, uh, those insoluble aggregates disrupt the cellular function and can even kill a brain cell. Now, in the case of Parkinson's disease, we don't quite know which form of alpha-synuclein that is the bad one? Is it when you have big lumps, the Lewy bodies that we've talked about, or is it when you have little aggregates, when a few alpha-synuclein molecules join together in what we call oligomers? It's still an area of debate which are the ones that are worst for the cell. So it sounds like, in essence, there, there are really two problems that happen. They, they change their shape and they change their solubility in a sense, so they, they clump together into these sticky clumps. So that's problem one, because that sort of sounds like it kind of literally gums up the works. The other problem, to go to your egg analogy, is that once an egg is boiled, it's boiled, right? It, 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 you can't get it back uh, to its original form. So is, is that part of the puzzle that, that you and others are trying to unlock? Well, 
maybe you can unboil um, an egg if it's an egg inside a cell. So we, we're learning that in, there are several diseases where there are misfolded proteins that cause neurological symptoms. And we're learning in various models of these diseases in the laboratory that you can actually dissolve or gobble up and degrade some aggregates. But we don't really know what size of aggregates and, and we, we don't know for sure which molecular pathways are used. We've learned a lot in the past 10 15 years about how cyanuclein can be degraded by a cell and uh, if it's caused an aggregate. And some therapeutic approaches are targeting the pathways that the cell normally uses to dispose of misfolded proteins and trying to boost those pathways to get rid of these small aggregates mm. or these large aggregates. And we must learn and understand that aggregation of a protein is not just the consequence of mutations, that is, they, they are not just inherited, but proteins can aggregate as a consequence of, for example, neuroinflammation. There can be agents uh, when there's inflammation going on in the brain that affect protein structure and alter their structure. But there's an additional interesting lesson we've learned from genetics, and it's that there are other types of genetic changes that are associated with Parkinson's disease or Parkinson-like conditions. And one of them is that if you have an extra copy of the synuclein gene, so these people make too much synuclein, that alone is sufficient to cause accumulation and aggregation and misfolding of the protein. So it suggests that in a normal state, the cell sort of takes care of this, disposes some of the protein, but when there's too much being formed, it can't keep up and it starts to aggregate. So it doesn't even have to be misfolded to start with. It can be a normal protein. So this is a, a fascinating discovery. Uh, now, did it also connect with a clinical finding that people were saying, beginning to say at the time that Parkinson's was a much more diffuse, much more systemic type of disease? Did this way of looking at alpha-synuclein spreading through the brain and body offer a way of explaining that? I'm thinking here of the work of the German pathologist Heiko Brach. Yes, yeah, so that's right. So in the wake of this discovery, people developed new tools to study alpha-synuclein. So in the microscope, you can see alpha-synuclein if you label sections of tissue, for example, from the brain or from the gut. And what Heiko Brock started to do was to stain parts of the body that people normally wouldn't be looking at. So he looked at the heart, he looked at the gut, et cetera, et cetera. And he found aggregates of alpha-synuclein in these parts of the body in Parkinson's disease. And he started to suggest that maybe this is where it all starts. So the first place where synuclein would misfold might be in the nerves that innervate the muscle of the intestine. And it might also be in the nerves that are present in uh, adjacent to our nose. So the olfactory system. So basically then a, a sort of an idea began to emerge that when a person got Parkinson's, it could be explained potentially in, in the fact that too much of this misfolded protein got built up and spread from region to region in the body and brain. But in 2009, you had a, a chance to sort of test this. It involved a piece of work you'd done years before in neural grafting. Um, there were patients who'd had fetal grafts who had survived for a decade or more, right? And why were they an interesting place where you could test this theory of alpha-synuclein spread? How, tell us about how that came about. Yes, so the interesting thing is that that discovery, I would say, was 
piece of serendipity. So we weren't necessarily expecting or looking for this when we made that discovery. We we knew of Haeckel-Brock's studies, and we knew that Haeckel-Brock, in his, his papers, he was discussing and speculating that perhaps there is a virus that attacks the olfactory system and attacks the gut, and this virus then spreads through the nervous system. He never really thought that a protein was the uh, infectious agent. But when we looked at the transplants of people who, with Parkinson's disease who'd been having these transplants in their brains for, as you said, 10 to 16 years, we stained those transplants to see that they were doing well and that they looked like they were healthy, etc. And as part of that, we stained some sections with an antibody that could detect misfolded alpha-synuclein. And I would say very much to our surprise, in 2 to 5% of the transplanted cells, there were Louis bodies. And this got our minds rolling, thinking, wow, maybe those Louis bodies were the result of transfer of misfolded synuclein from the patient's brain into these young, immature, transplanted neurons. One has to remember these neurons, biologically, in the transplant, their age was only 10 to 16 years because they came from fetal brain tissue. And we don't normally see Lewy bodies in kids who are 10 to 16 years old. So something dramatic had happened here. And, and it, when we published these papers, we discussed that it could be a prion-like mechanism. So prions are proteins that are known to be infectious and can cause diseases such as uh, the very rare Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, or in cattle they can cause mad cow disease. Now, we weren't thinking that Parkinson's disease is infectious from one individual to another, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. This is very important. So the idea wasn't that if you hugged your grandmother who has Parkinson's, somehow you'd get infected by a protein. But we were thinking that inside a given patient, the protein could move from one cell to another and then spread the pathology and the, these Lewy bodies throughout the brain and potentially start in the gut. Yeah, so it was, it was really, a, uh, for us, a bit of a revolution when we saw this. It was actually in 2008 that we published these observations that we made in 2007, and it really kick-started a new field of research where there are many, many people working on this and, and contributing in, in various ways to understanding this process. So, Patrick, it proved that those patients who'd had the neural grafts, that the, the disease that they had before, the Parkinson's disease, was still ongoing, that, it, that um, it continued even though they'd had the neural grafting, right? That's right. So, so interestingly, some of the patients where we, we saw these Lewy bodies, they had done very well with their neural grafts. They had actually responded very well, and, and their ability to move was excellent. But the disease process continued, so they were getting Lewy bodies all over the brain. And when they passed away, it was 10 to 16 years after the surgery, but it was 20 to 26, 30 years after their diagnosis. So they had had the disease for a long time. We're going to uh, turn to Kimberly Gannon's work in a moment, uh, Patrick, to talk about some of the possibilities for um, solving the riddle of alpha-synuclein. But before we do that, I wonder if you just put into perspective for us now where we are with our understanding of alpha-synuclein 
and how central you think that is to solving the problem of, of Parkinson's disease. It's really been a pretty short amount of time. We began this conversation by talking about these genetic discoveries just a little more than, than 15 years ago. And now it seems like the entire, if not the entire, but a large portion of the scientific focus on Parkinson's is, is on this particular sticky protein. So give us some sense of where you think we are and why you think it's so important to come to a, a clearer understanding of what to do about this aspect of the disease. So first, I think it's important to emphasize that Parkinson's disease is a heterogeneous entity. There are many different forms of Parkinson's disease. We haven't just quite yet learned how to divide them up. And about 5% have clear inheritance, and we know that in some of those cases, alpha-synuclein might not play an important role, but these are very rare inherited forms, and there's very important research being done to understand those genes that are mutated in these rare forms. But if you look at the vast majority of cases then, the 90-95% where there isn't a clear familial inheritance, there might still be some genetic risk factors, but if you look at those, alpha-synuclein really seems to play an important role. We are we need to understand, are the aggregates that we can see in the microscope, are they the bad guys or are there smaller uh, microaggregates of synuclein that precede these that are really the bad guys? We need to understand whether this uh, spreading process that we've talked about, whether that is a key element of the disease. Is this the reason why patients get worse over time and that start exhibiting many non-motor symptoms as the disease progresses. If these things turn out to be true, the fact that alpha-synuclein moves between cells offers a new opportunity for therapy because it means that you can access the molecule. It's not hidden inside a cell. Molecules that are inside cells are a little bit more difficult to target than those that are present in the extracellular space. So recent developments, for example, with uh, immunotherapy, where you direct antibodies against alpha-synuclein, they benefit from our understanding now that synuclein might be outside cells for part of its life cycle in the disease. So, Kim Gannon, can we bring you in here? If alpha-synuclein is the problem we've been talking about for Parkinson's, right, um, can you broaden it to sort of tell us uh, about other neuro degenerative diseases because other such diseases have different proteins, don't they? I mean, this is alpha-synuclein is not unique in this respect. Yes, yes. And I just want to say that I, I do think that we're making some very good advances in elucidating some of the common elements across various neurodegenerative diseases. And one of those is protein misfolding. And as Patrick so elegantly described, uh, protein misfolding results in aggregation or clumping of the proteins, and this does underlie many neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's diseases. And so these misfolded proteins can form what is called a cross-beta sheet, and this is referred to as an amyloid. And some of the proteins that can misfold and form amyloids are obviously alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's disease, but also A-beta and tau, which are implicated in Alzheimer's disease. And to complicate the picture, multiple forms of amyloids or misfolded proteins are found in specific diseases. So Parkinson's disease, for example, can have alpha-synuclein and A-beta and, and tau. Alzheimer's disease can have the same 
And so it becomes a very complicated picture when one tries to think about therapies to target these diseases. And so the other thing that I think is a common element is the propagation that Patrick referred to. And it looks as though these misfolded proteins or amyloids can seed and propagate throughout the brain. And that does open that up as a therapeutic target for us in trying to um, develop drugs to treat these diseases. So let's talk about the therapies. Your company, Neurophage, is based on an amazing discovery that a, a naturally occurring virus called M13 seemed to have a a special ability to destroy not just one of these amyloids, but, but several of them. Is that correct? That, that is correct. So the discovery was, it was based on um, a discovery that was made purely serendipitous by Dr. Rebecca Solomon. And she was working in the Alzheimer's disease field, and so she was trying to use what, what is called uh, bacteriophage M13, a common naturally occurring virus that affects a certain type of bacteria in mammalian gut, so she was using this as a carrier to try to enhance the brain penetration of uh, A-beta antibodies. And she was using uh, transgenic mouse models that develop plaque in their brains. In her study, as a negative control, she used M13 alone. And much to her surprise, M13 alone was highly effective in reducing the A-beta plaque and even causing cognitive improvement in, in these animals. So Neurophage then did additional research and found out that not only did M13 target A-beta amyloid, but amyloids in general, so alpha-synuclein, tau, and other amyloids, and um, not only multiple amyloids, but within those amyloids, different configurations. Patrick mentioned oligomers and the, the dense core aggregated forms that are kind of the end stage of the amyloids. And so this very serendipitous discovery seems to be very general in affecting amyloids. And so we're, we're very excited about the technology. So you, you're not using a, a virus to do this as a therapy. You, you figured out what the virus was doing and turned it into a, a new medicine. Is that correct? That's correct. Early on, we, we did entertain how do we get this virus you know, into drug development and, and into the clinic for, for therapeutic use? But we started looking at the bacteriophage, which is a very large entity, and we found that a very small part of the bacteriophage was responsible for the activity. So we isolated that, and we created what is called a, a fusion protein. And that is now a very druggable therapeutic, potential therapeutic, and, and we can administer uh, in the clinic with a, an IV injection. And so that is what we're, we're taking into the clinic. Right now, we are um, on our way to the IND. We expect to, to file an investigational new drug application with the FDA uh, later this year. Just to clarify for a moment, Kim, sort of where you are at in, in the process, this is still not in the in clinical testing yet. You're in the preclinical um, phase. So when you were describing taking it to in the process, just give us a sense of where you are in the process and how long it might be before this is something that's actually tested in human beings. Absolutely, and that's a very important point. So we are still in what's called preclinical stage, and so we are putting together a preclinical, so before human testing, package of information that also includes safety information as well as efficacy in various animal models of neurodegenerative disease. So once we file an IND with the FDA, which will be later this year. And an IMD is? An investigational new drug application 
then we are able to go into, with the FDA approval, go into clinical trials. And so just to give you an idea of the time frame, we're planning our first clinical trial in humans, which is referred to as a phase 1A, early in 2016. Now that trial will be in normal, healthy volunteers to start to accumulate some early safety data. Then once we have the safety data, and once again the FDA is approving the next step, we'll go into what's called a phase 1B trial where we'll start to, for the first time, test in patients. And the company is planning the first phase 1B trial to be in Alzheimer's disease patients, and then shortly thereafter we will start a phase 1B in Parkinson's disease patients. What's so interesting, I think, about this work that you're doing is that it does have this possibility of being versatile, you know, that you could go after any number of neurological disorders, uh, including Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, perhaps others as well, like, like Huntington's, right? That's correct. This is something that has potential across a broad spectrum. Is there any sense at this point, though, Kim, yet as to what's the best candidate, or are you sort of an, is it an equal opportunity drug, I guess, at, at this point in the process? It's so early to, to make any, any statements like that. We have most of our animal model data in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, and there the animal data look very good, but it's always a big jump going from the early testing in preclinical animal models to the clinic. So we're just focused on getting into the clinic and testing in humans with those initial indications, uh, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, as I mentioned, being our two primary indications. So Patrick and Kim, I'm wondering if we could wrap up now. That This is such an exciting story, but not everybody is totally convinced, are they, that alpha-synuclein is really the culprit? Alpha-synuclein could be something that's present at cell death, a kind of tombstone, that doesn't actually cause the death in the first place. I mean, this is still potentially true. Can you comment on that? I mean, how much confidence do you have that we're on the right track, I guess, is my question. There is some debate about the role of alpha-synuclein. As you indicated, maybe it's just telling us these cells are sick, but there is another underlying cause. However, I think the genetic evidence in the rare inherited cases speaks in a very compelling way to say that synuclein is a major player. So we know that point mutations can cause the disease. We know that having too much synuclein due to genetic changes can cause the disease. It doesn't mean that the 90-95% of patients who have a non-familial, non-inherited form, it doesn't mean that they are also directly caused by synuclein. But the fact that they have aggregates of synuclein as well as the genetic cases having that, that really suggests that synuclein is a major player there too. And there's so much experimental evidence to suggest it, it can be toxic in, in certain shapes and forms that I think the case is compelling. I completely agree. And I think that the evidence is very strong for the role of alpha-synuclein as a pathological agent in Parkinson's disease. It may not be the only player, but I think that the effort spent on this target is well worth it. That was Kim Gannon of Neurophage and Patrick Brunden of the Van Andel Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And John, a um, lot of interesting ground, I think, that we covered in that conversation and sort of fingers crossed, I guess, at this point, right, that both Kim and Patrick are right, that solving the riddle of alpha-synuclein will really get us to where we want to go. 
Well, I'm hopeful. I mean, it's a fantastic story, a brilliant piece of science. But after all this time, practically three decades, we're still not sure what the toxic form of alpha-synuclein is, whether it's the small oligomers or whether it's the larger lumps that form Lewy bodies. And it seems to me there's a certain danger in trying to, if you get rid of too much alpha-synuclein, who knows what would happen. So I'm not really sure. I mean, the preliminary results of, kind of, of these immunotherapies are pretty interesting, but almost still anything could happen, Dave, at this stage. Right. And there are a number of strategies to try to get rid of alpha-synuclein from those immunotherapies, antibodies fighting against it. There's some thought that maybe you could get the, the, shut down the production of alpha-synuclein altogether if you could sort of turn it off at the cellular level. But as you say, we don't fully understand what the right amount of alpha-synuclein is to have. So in some ways, we're we're still a long ways from figuring out exactly what it is that we need to do. Now, the stuff that sounds most hopeful thing is the strategy to reduce the amount of alpha-synuclein that spreads from neuron to neuron. That way, you could stabilize and slow down the progression of a disease like Parkinson's without inflicting too much risk on the patient. Don't you agree? I do, and we'll hope as we proceed in the months ahead and as we approach the World Parkinson Congress in Portland in the fall of 2016 that our knowledge base will increase that much more, and maybe at the World Parkinson Congress we'll hear some more information about whether or not we're getting closer to figuring this out. And that wraps up our conversation for today. Until next time on the Portland Countdown, I'm Dave Iverson. And I'm John Palferman. Portland Countdown is brought to you by the World Parkinson Coalition, with technical support provided by Danny Bringer. Special thanks to our expert guests who make this series possible and who serve the Parkinson's community. Support for Portland Countdown comes from Parkinson's Resources of Oregon. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit WPC2016.org to learn about the upcoming Fourth World Parkinson Congress in September 2016.